0: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Dr. Freeman Rabowski, who served as the president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County for 30 years. He retired from UMBC in 2022, and he remains active as an educator and mentor to students and administrators across the country. Under his inspired leadership, UMBC became an academic powerhouse which is recognized as an R1 institution, the highest ranking afforded to the country's most prestigious research institutions. And his success in cultivating the talent of students of color is unparalleled. For years, UMBC has produced more black MD PhDs and PhD STEM program degree earners than any other college in the country. And as I've reminded you before on this show, Freeman Rabowski's commitment to civil rights and social justice has been lifelong. He grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Before he was a teenager, he was marching with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and he counted among his friends the girls who were murdered in the 16th Street Baptist church bombing in 1963. In 2019, Dr. Robowski published a book with two colleagues from UMBC, Peter Henderson and Philip Rouse, called The Empowered University, Shared Leadership, Culture Change, and Academic Success. Dr. Rabowski, along with those colleagues, as well as another administrator from UMBC, Lynn Schaefer, have just published a sequel to that book called The Resilient University, How Purpose and Inclusion Drive Student Success. The resilient university is, like its predecessor, a handbook for leaders in higher education to help them navigate the post-COVID universe of universities in an age where the very concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion have come under attack, dismissed as woke ideology. And in that way, the book is an excellent read for people outside of education as a handbook for citizenship. What is the purpose and potential of DEI? Does higher education have a particular obligation to further the free exchange of ideas? Can universities model aspirations for society at large? Dr. Freeman Rabowski joins me today to talk about the book and the state of higher education at this moment in which educators and students face unprecedented challenges challenges. Freeman, it's terrific to see you.
1: Thank you, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. By the way, the longer the introduction, the older the person.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You've aged considerably. There's more gray hair than when we started. That's right. My apologies. <laughs> well, before we talk about this really fascinating book, how's life post-UMBC? How do you like in retirement and what are you doing?
1: Exactly? Right. Life is great. I I will always love UMBC. I'm so proud of their new dynamic President, President Valerie Shears Ashby, and people are doing well there. And I talk about that experience, my experience there, all over the country. But I am working with university boards and leaders around the nation. And I'm serving as the ACE Centennial Fellow. Uh, ACE is the American Council on Education, and it represents all the college college presidents. presidents. That's Mm -hmm. exactly right. And I work with the, the leader, Ted Mitchell, and Derek Anderson, those leaders, and others. Addressing issues involving higher education and working with
0: colleagues around the country. Yeah, Yeah. busier than ever. Sure, sure. (laughs) sure. Well, that's no surprise. Thank you. Um, You you talk about leadership, which is such a, you know, a malleable, uh, can be amorphous uh, notion. And you say right at the top of the book that leaders need to keep people calm, keep them hopeful and intentional, and be resilient and mission focused. That sounds hard (laughs) that sounds like a lot to have to do sure um it's a special mix of skills running a university isn't it
1: yes it it really is and i after all those years i'm still thinking about the role of the president as i work with new presidents in the harvard program and with others around the country again and what i would say is this number one uh, this new book the resilient university is based on as a foundation the empowered university And in that book, the first sentence is this, it's not about me, it's about us. And so I start with that, that we have to stop thinking about leadership as the one person job. It is, leadership is about a range of people working to meet certain goals, to help other people. But the job is very hard, it can be very lonely. And from my perspective, as I talked with my colleagues, the provost at UMBC, senior associate to me, uh, Philip Rouse, Peter Henderson and Lynn Schaefer, the CFO, uh, what we saw was that it was important to think about leadership teams. And so as we talk in the book about leadership, again, it's about, yeah, the individual in some ways, but it's really about how groups work together to, to reach certain goals, uh, to set a mission. And right now, there's no mission that we should have that's more focused, uh, more important to focus on than that of student success, academic success. And that's why the subtitle of that book is Purpose and Inclusion, with an emphasis on student success.
0: And you say that purpose and inclusion in the leadership style yes. is the thing that leads to uh, you know, a centered academic program that drives student success. So what does sure. that mean exactly? How sure. does inclusion relate to sure. student success? Sure, we, we have to continue
1: to think about whom we serve and what their needs are and uh, to use that athletic metaphor of uh, keeping one's eye on the ball mm-hmm. because it's so easy to get off track because of problems with people who are upset about something um or problems with finances and to forget why we're we here we are here to serve our students how can we do that best and i suppose a, This word resilience that we use is more important now than ever because we all get knocked down in different ways through COVID, through the political divides in our country. We are concerned about issues and the number one point has to be, but we can get back up and keep focusing on that mission, on that purpose, on what is most important, which should again be the success of students, but also the success of faculty and staff. And helping our communities. I mean, I think we sometimes forget that colleges and universities are here because they make a difference in our society. They help to solve problems. We teach people how to think critically, how to think about what it means to be a citizen, in fact, right? And so the book is is a is a response to the point. Of, Oh, the question, does higher education matter? It matters now more than ever. People are wondering, what's our future going to be? It's through higher education, really, that people learn more, more and more about history, first in in, in school, in K through 12, but we continue that in the liberal arts mode. That, And if we study history, Tom, we realize we have faced many of these problems before. In so many ways, when people say, we've never been so divided, I think they're forgetting the Civil War. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right? I think they're forgetting the 60s. Uh, uh, Our beloved President Kennedy couldn't get much done. He really couldn't because of the divisions in Congress and the divisions in society. It took, took a Southerner, Lyndon Johnson. To bring about the changes that led to the Civil Rights Act and the Higher Education Act, and we talk about those. And before that time, very few Americans had graduated from college. And so we need that larger context as we think about what I would call the 60-year journey. Since the '60s until today, you
0: yeah, know, it was about ten percent back in the '60s. That's exactly, it got right. up to thirty-one percent. That's so. exactly but right. We should also recall that that you <laughs> know, two-thirds of the country doesn't have a college degree.
1: Well, again, and, and when people break it down by different groups, it's interesting that we are up to about forty percent of whites, but that means sixty percent of whites don't have a college degree. Uh, we are talking about about. Not quite 30% of blacks, high 20s. And for Hispanics, it's only about 20%. For Asians, it's over 50%. Mm-hmm. But altogether, as you said, we're talking about two-thirds of Americans without a college degree. Now, let me also add that community colleges also vary. I was talking about a four-year degree. Yeah, but the certificate
0: s- programs, yes, that they kind of stuff. They are
1: very important because about 40% of Americans begin their education in community colleges, well over 40%.
0: So both are very important. But it's important importance to citizenship is really striking. Uh, Stanford, you mentioned, actually has a course that they require all freshmen to take called Citizenship for the 21st Century. Yes. What does it mean sure. to be a citizen in this bifurcated political environment? Sure. Uh, and And when you talk about Empowering. I mean, you you wrote a lot about that in the first book and in this book as well. You know, empowering people as a leader, as a college president, um, it's it's more complicated than just saying, okay, I'm not going to micromanage. I'm going to let you do your thing and you you do your job and I'll do mine. Uh, it's 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 essential that people feel that, I guess it's, it's a matter of ownership? How would you describe it? No, uh, I, I, Several things. Number one, I think it's
1: about mindset. Carol Dweck talks a lot about mindset. The fact is that we have to think about um, what difference can we make as leaders? How do we have an impact on other people? And there's a notion in higher education that many Americans don't fully understand, and that is of shared governance. The idea of shared leadership. And I'm very proud that always remembering at UMBC that we did talk about the role of the important role of faculty and of staff and of students in working with the administration, in making decisions and thinking about how we get things done. Now, what I will tell you is that you mentioned Stanford. I was very, very proud of UMBC's emphasis on the liberal arts broadly and the need to help students Uh, become grounded in the humanities and social sciences and to become good thinkers and to think about what it means to be a citizen itself so universities are doing that i think we can all do more especially because of the the emphasis on technology on so much information and on the questions about the truth i think now more than ever the idea of seeking the truth should be a theme on all of our campuses and helping people understand how we discern what is true, what is fact, what is opinion, how do we listen to the evidence
0: in making those decisions. Because leaders of colleges and universities have been under assault in particular this year, sure, you know, very much. So. I mean, we got four uh, yeah. university presidents—Columbia, uh, MIT, UPenn, and Harvard—invited uh, to speak before Congress. The person from Columbia had the brains to say no <laughs> yeah. and didn't show up. And the other of the other three, two out of three, uh, ended up losing their jobs. So that notion of handling, managing, uh, leading through the crises when there are divisions on. The campus between those in support of Israel, those in in support of the Palestinians in this conflict, Uh, it's tough. What's your take on what happened, for example, with Dr. Gay, Claudine Gay at Harvard University? I assume you know her? I do
1: know her. She's a fine scholar
0: and was doing
1: a a fine job as the president there. The, The challenge is that on that campus and many others, people have very different points of view about these issues, about anti-Semitism, about what's happening with the Palestinians. uh, And and no doubt she was against genocide and no doubt she was bothered by some of the protests on our campus and had to deal with the legal side of that. And um, uh, she would be the first to say that if she had it to do over again, she perhaps would have done some things differently, right? Because it was clear that the questions were coming in in a way that were not about seeking understanding. They were putting them on the spot when they were dealing with legal issues, but the fact is that somehow uh, we have to be able to say to people, listen, this is the truth. Of course we are against genocide. Of course we haven't put something in writing in a policy. Of course we have to deal with the lawyers on what we can say, right? And what, in hindsight, what many would say is that presidents from going there again can say, And it would be up to Congress to help us with those laws, because the fact was that 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 person who was doing the questions questioning was acting like the moral arbiter, which was just not the case, you see. And so it was important uh, for all of us to think about the dynamics there. And it didn't work well. It did not. But what I would say about the presidency in general is this, that uh, that person must continue to work to do the right thing. But doing the right thing means listening to a lot of people on that campus to understand the challenges. When we talk about the Middle East, most Americans really don't understand the issues. They don't understand the the role of religion. It was Vartan Gregorian, former President Brown, and then Carnegie, who said if there was one course he wished every college student could take, it would be comparative religion, you see? Yeah. Uh, and my own uh, experience as an exchange student in Egypt, 50 years ago, 40 some years ago, um, my God, 50-some years ago, uh, and going to Israel a number of times. Uh, you have those experiences, and you realize, and you talk to your Jewish friends, and you talk to friends who are Muslim, and you realize how complicated the problems
0: are. And, and people with legitimate claims to uh, legacy of the land. Uh, and the, and the is, issue, and what I would say is that, yeah,
1: and I would say that, that most reasonable people would say, of course we're concerned about the lives of all those Palestinians who've been killed. We're concerned about the hostages, we're concerned about the leadership of the countries, and it does take time to think through the appropriate answer, other than to say, we're concerned about humankind, and we want fairness to all people, and we need to stop the war in this way. But but those things are simple to say, harder to bring
0: about. Dr. Freeman Rabowski, he is the co-author of The Resilient University, How Purpose and Inclusion drive student success. We'll have more with Freeman Rabowski on the other side of a quick break. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we're not able to take any calls or online comments today. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us.
1: I'm Al Waller.
0: I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihala Vince.
1: In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and Institute.org.
0: Welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Freeman Robowski, one of the most acclaimed and influential educators and public intellectuals in America and indeed the world. He is the former president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and with some of his UMBC colleagues, he is the author of The Resilient University, How Purpose and Inclusion Drive Student Success. We're talking about that book today. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we can't take any calls or emails. I want to ask you one more question about Dr. Gay at Harvard, because there have been allegations. uh, They started online uh, from conservative sources that Dr. Gay's scholarship was deficient, Uh, the accusations of plagiarism. Um, How does that fit into this story? What's your take on, mm-hmm. you know, the academic standards? There was a, a very interesting piece in the Harvard Crimson by a student at Harvard mm-hmm. saying there are students uh, who've done stuff that's not as bad as what Dr. Gay's alleged to have done. And they're put, you know, on suspension, academic suspension for a year. How can this woman continue in office? And in fact, it was enough to to, to drive her out of the job.
1: Sure. I don't think it was about the plagiarism that she was driven out of the job. There were much bigger issues there. She is a very fine scholar, respected uh, by her colleagues, certainly respected by me for her scholarship. Those were minor errors. She apologized for them. They were not errors involving the substance of the work.
0: You have to get and into One of it, them know. was in, like, the acknowledgments of a yeah, dissertation. Yeah, I mean, and, and even when
1: there, were anything, when there was something involving another author, she would have had the author's name there. She didn't put the quotes there, those kinds of things. But they were minor. They were minor errors. It was not about her basic assumptions or about her conclusions. And so uh, what I would always say is look to the experts. The experts in her discipline are still very much in favor of the work that she has done. She is a fine scholar. She is. Uh, they, but the resignation had much more to do with the pressure and all the hatred from so many in the country towards her. It was racial, uh, was it? It was indeed racial, and a woman, and racial, both. Both. That, the fact that all three of the people called were new, who went with three women, new in the job, yeah, and she was black, but but clearly... Race and gender did play a factor there. And there, there's a lot of hatred in the society. But let me let me just say this in general. And I can say this now. I even said it before. But now that I'm not a public official, it's so easy for people to sit on the sidelines and to be the quarterback and to judge and to be the moral arbiter and to write using technology. The nastiest of things about people. Yeah. Robbing bombs yeah. on X. Oh, yeah. And... So I really am encouraging us to think about who we are as individuals and as a society, as universities, and to look in the mirror and to breathe deeply and to try to see the other person's point of view. We we have become so comfortable throwing bombs at people. and And the hatred is just so concerning. And she was receiving so much of that. She didn't deserve any of that.
0: You write about the the notion of excellence, yes, which of course is you know fundamental to scholarship, fundamental to learning, yes. fundamental to the, how a university operates, um, and you say that sometimes excellence becomes a code word for exclusion. Ah. Uh, you mentioned the UMBC mission statement actually right. talks about redefining excellence yes. Yes. what parts yes. need to be redefined yes. what, what do we not get right yes. about our notion
1: of excellence sure sure that, that first of all excellence is about much more than test scores we should know that <laughs> but but that when we think about excellence we like to talk at UNBC and around the country people are now talking about inclusive excellence meaning we're working to have the highest possible standards for people from all types of backgrounds to help them achieve At the highest levels but you see and when you talk about having those very high standards of expectations you have to also talk about very high standards of support for people people need support in different ways and it's the combination of those two and it's also understanding that if you go into a room and every high achiever looks from the same or is from the same race or the same gender so often then the question is what about the other people That's whether you're in the corporate world, in universities, and for our country, fundamental question, uh, should the zip code of a child where the child is born determine what happens to that child? How do we give that child support to excel? Not just to barely make it, but to excel. That's what I always loved about UMBC, that we have students from 100 countries and um, amazingly working to see people from Baltimore City to Eastern Shore of Maryland to New York and other places excelling in science, in the humanities, and other areas. And that that's inclusive excellence. Most important, though, uh, it seems to me we have to realize we have a much better... We, have a, we can do much better and in higher education. The Resilient University is about just that. Building on the first book of the Empowered University, it is saying we really made... Uh, mistakes during covid we all did we came to understand that science is not something that's static that it continues
0: to change right yeah following the science wasn't so easy as it turned out no
1: and people thought well once you did what the scientists said it's fine no scientists keep learning more that's a part of the lesson we get from the resilient university that we kept learning that things are evolving we have to be able to evolve institutions must be dynamic not static Uh, Whether talking about using technology and AI or whether talking about the fact that not enough students are graduating from our institutions. You know, you you see in that book where it says 60% graduate from four-year institutions, Um, but that's so misleading because the richest institutions will have a graduation rate that's 90% in the head. But many institutions have a graduation rate in general across races that's below 40%.
0: Uh, yeah. Think about so it. So those way. are kids who are investing, yeah. you know, a fair amount of money. Yes. Not getting a degree. Yeah. Uh, and it's you know more than half. Yes. Not finishing. They're starting. So yes. enrollment is one metric Very that people important. use. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of college presidents tell me, because we have this series here, Mer- uh, mid down Higher Education. I talked to uh, all of your former sure, colleagues sure, around the state. sure, And they say enrollment is a real challenge. Right. right. But enrolling is one thing. Yeah. Finishing is another.
1: It's just like in hospitals. You know, hospitals can be full. But what people And we want them to be full. Right? But we also want to know they, that we do the best job and they do well as often as possible. Suppose we said that the, that the uh, success rate of hospitals was 60% mm-hmm. in the country. People would be livid. And so I'm suggesting, and my colleagues and I are suggesting, that we can all do much better to make sure many more of those students will graduate from two and four year institutions. And a part of it has to do with having that vision. We talk about vision and the courage to be truthful about these things. That we in higher education have to say, no, we have a lot to we have a lot more to do. And when you think about inclusion. You know, when people talk about DEI and you, we've got challenges right now with people not even liking the expression. I'm always saying, what's the point? Whether you use that term or not, we're trying to make sure that people have the opportunity to go to college and to learn and grow and develop and become productive citizens. You see, and the the challenge is millions of Americans have not made it and they've left college in general and they have bills and the debt from college without the skills or a certification in order to do what they need to do. But the other side, Tom, has to do with everything we do with the future of our political system and the need to have citizens who can think clearly and analyze problems and look at both sides. This is a part of what we say in the book, Uh, leaders are helping people to look at both sides of the issue and to go for that evidence, to look for the evidence in making a decision about what's in the best interest of our country or in the best
0: interest of our children, for example. If you've just joined us, it's midday. I'm Tom Hall. My guest, Dr. Freeman Robowski. He is the co-author with three colleagues from UMBC of The Resilient University, How Purpose and Inclusion Drive Student Success. It is a sequel to the first volume in this—I don't know—maybe it'll end up being a trilogy. Uh, <laughs> seems to be what book publishers do. Uh, called the Empowered University, and you mentioned DEI, and I do want to ask you sure. about that because it literally is under attack. Yes, you've got governors of uh, Florida and other states, yes. uh, you know, forbidding. DEI offices. Uh, Ron DeSantis calls them the uh, the epicenter of woke ideology. Right. Um, they're talking about not allowing the, the the teaching of sociology in universities in the state of Florida. I mean, just it's crazy stuff. So there are two things
1: I would say. Number one, we are challenged to find elected officials who want to seek the truth as a society, who want to, for example, make sure that history, accurate history, is told because it's our story of all of us. you know. And historians, we want to listen to expertise. That's the other point. We should not have politicians telling educators what they should and should not do. We have experts in these areas, historians, sociologists, and others. Uh, but I think we will have to rethink language that we use. When I'm in different states, I see these problems. I see where offices are being dismantled. So there are terms that will not stand the test of time. There's just no doubt about it. Uh, A term like woke is one we should just stop using. Some people don't like my saying that, but it it has no meaning. People mean different things by it. We should talk about what is it we're trying to say. If we're saying that we want to make sure that the country is just and it's fair, to its citizens that we want to believe in and listen to history and learn from history, accurate history. We should just say that, for example. Uh, We have to learn to to breathe deeply when we hear things that are different from what we believe and understand that perspective. Not because we're gonna change our point of view, but because we want to see how we can find some common ground. But I'll give you an example. Um uh, people may be attacking in country in states DEI, but I'm saying I asked the question uh to many audiences, um uh, what group in America, demographic group, has had the sharpest decline in attendance in higher education?
0: And people give me different
1: answers, but the answer is white males. Low income, working class white males.
0: And what we see, there's a lot more women enrolled in college these days, and in medical schools, and in a bunch of places, law schools.
1: And we we celebrate. We need to celebrate those women because women are being so attacked these days, and their rights have been taken. So we've got an issue there too. So we have. We need to look at specificity with these issues. I bring that one up though because when I'm talking sometimes to conservative legislators, and they are talking about their disdain for DEI, and I'm saying, but don't you want more Americans to get a college education. And when they realize I'm saying their grandsons too, particularly when they're working class white guys, you see, as a, as a, in addition to the other groups that we're talking about, then the word inclusion comes up because it, it really is an American idea. This We've never fully attained that ideal, but the idea that we want to include people in our society and give them these opportunities and the support they need to do it. But and so I would say we need to keep thinking about what we're trying to accomplish and not worry about language like critical race theory, which only the the law professors understand anyway. Right. You know, state legislature
0: of Florida seems to think they're teaching it in the fourth grade. Yeah.
1: And they don't understand what they're talking about. We need to. But listening to experts, I work with the National Academy of Sciences and Engineering. And the purpose of those of those groups is to be the experts for the country in in science, but in social sciences too. And and the fact is that we as Americans have begun to think that what we believe and our opinion is more important than what experts would say. And that means we have a responsibility in universities to build more trust with the public.
0: And a recent poll actually said that corporate America actually embraces the notions of diversity, equity, and inclusion much more highly than... Uh, certain members of the Republican Party. So that's an interesting. Uh,
1: some companies and, and and some others are under under attack right now. And we're going to go through this period of it being attacked. But but I think I keep saying that we should hold on to the idea of fairness and inclusion. So,
0: and into and 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 in terms of cultivating the culture yes, that yes. values inclusion. Yes, is yes. it. Uh, a prerogative is is it necessary to have for example your successor uh, dr. Um, Ashby shears at, at UNBC uh, created the office of institutional equity and chief diversity officer right. There are a number of right. those positions being created in corporate America in the University of America yes um I read an article in Reason Magazine, which is a sort of libertarian thing, about a uh, a guy named Yoel Inbar, who's a social psychologist, a Ph.D., uh, applied for a job at UCLA, went through all the hoops, including writing a diversity and equity statement that mm-hmm. everybody, applicants are asked to write. Mm-hmm. And he said in a podcast that he wondered having individual people write a DEI statement perhaps could have a uh, a, a, a bad effect on diversity of thought. And he made kind of a passing Comment about this. Sure. Sixty-six students at UCLA heard about it and demanded that he not be hired, and in fact he wasn't. So I just wondered if because it's been institutionalized, yes. is it at all attenuating uh, you know, the, the value that it brings?
1: You know, I have often talked to chief diversity officers who have said they have less power than they would want to have. And there's no doubt that these universities have had the best of intent when they've developed these offices. And I was proud of what um, uh, our president at UMBC has done, Dr. Uh, Shears Ashby. But this is what I would say um, the substance of this work is not about the title of an office, it is about the culture of the institution, it is about the commitment of leaders not just presidents and provosts, but faculty leaders and staff, to say, we want to make sure we're representative of the American population.
0: And I want to talk about culture yes. when we come back sure. from a quick break. Sure. One of the scholars you quote in the book says, it's the sea we swim in. Yes. And boy, ain't it ever. <laughs>
1: you, do, you really do your homework. I'm impressed. <laughs>
0: Dr. Freeman Hrabowski, along with Peter Henderson, Lynn Schaefer, and Philip Rouse. He's the author of The Resilient University, How Purpose and Inclusion Drives Student Success. We'll have more with Dr. Rabowski. After a quick break, I'm Tom Hall. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. In 1965, 10% of Americans over the age of 25 held an undergraduate degree. By 2021, that number went up to about a third of Americans, but racial disparities are stark. 61% of Asian Americans, 42% of whites have degrees, while black students account for 28% and Hispanics, 20%. While just over a third of Americans have college degrees, 40% of students who start college aren't able, for a lot of different reasons, to finish. If you just joined us, I'm talking about higher education today with one of the world's most highly respected educators, former UMBC president, Dr. Freeman Robowski. His latest book is called The Resilient University, How Purpose and Inclusion Drive Student Success. Our conversation was pre-recorded, so we aren't able to take any calls or online comments today. So as I promised uh, before the break, Freeman, I want to talk about this notion of culture. Yes. Um, this scholar Eric Weiner, Eric Weiner, uh, says culture is the sea we swim in, um, and then you quote yourself uh, where you say culture change is hard as hell. Yes, because changing, moving that culture—that yes. is the you know, uh, it's the it's the the luxury liner that you can't turn quickly. Um, the last thing you list yes. when it comes to how to change culture is you right. say sometimes you got to change the people, yeah. but you change all, you, you <laughs> have a whole lot of other changes you do before that. So what? Because w- the culture is really uh, you know the sea we swim in is yes. absolutely the perfect way of talking about it. If the culture is wrong everything else falls apart. Sure.
1: And we talk about the culture of a university. We talk about the culture of our society. And it's about the values. What is it we consider important? Uh, What are the incentives to do things in a certain way? Uh, The questions we ask, the questions we we don't ask for different reasons. And the real problem is that uh, once people are fairly comfortable doing things one way, it's hard to get them to change. As I go around talking in universities and in communities, people will say that. And... And the question, the big question is, what can leaders do, not just presidents, but faculty leaders and, and staff and students to look at where we are as a university, for example, and where we want to go? What will it take to get there? Does that mean changing our attitudes about technology, as an example, to use it more um, uh, effectively in the classroom? Or Does it mean sometimes hybrid courses where you do some in person, some not? Does it mean... Asking the hard questions. One of the chapters in this book, Resilient University, that my colleagues were especially pushing on as we talked about the issues was courage, the idea of courage. Do we have the courage to be honest and tell the truth and to be honest about what we don't do well as an institution? And it's very clear that we serve some students better than others. On any campus, we can always be better in what we're doing and so it takes and then to have the hard conversations how do we get our students and colleagues to sit and talk about matters that we really disagree about and that's and and your point earlier about diversity of thought to be respectful of people with different points of view and to see how we can continue to look for the evidence of what really is the case quite frankly and to to look at that and with the with the backdrop of what are our values what 's most important, if we really con- are concerned about people who are vulnerable, vulnerable populations, or we're concerned about the the gaps in our society, the economic gap, the health care gap, for example, then what would it mean we will do in the institution, university, community college, and a school system same thing. How do we continue to think about those values that are most important, and at the heart of the matter when we talk about culture change. It is about mindset of people. The same thing was true in our country, the 1954 decision desegregation. 10 years later in my hometown, people still hadn't really begun to integrate. We were just beginning to do that. People were just changing their minds. And we see how society changes with time, but it takes courage and it takes passion. It's another word we use, that we don't use enough in our education. So when people say to me, college doesn't matter, I ask this question, show, can you show me a family that has had the, the good fortune of seeing their children, one child educated, that will not want a next child to get some post-secondary education? Because it means getting more skills. It means a better job. It means being a better thinker and able to do in society yeah.
0: and that thinking is more and more difficult these days mm-hmm. given the plethora of misinformation, That's exactly right. disinformation. That's You're exactly right and we've right. talked about this before success is never fine. No, no. So you know perhaps the most important part of what you've just said is that we need to continue yes. to examine our values, continue to examine our culture and see if it's resonant yes. with those values because um, you know all of a sudden the the other thing is that we've got people uh weighing in uh, publicly and online and whatnot about a whole bunch of matters. I mean, there is a school of thought that says these college presidents, you know, that had such a rough time in front of the congressional hearing, right. you just shouldn't have said anything. That, that you know, University of Chicago, I guess, is famous for uh, all speech is okay, everybody talks, no safe spaces, uh, do what you want, say what you want, uh, and we're going to be tolerant of all of it. I mean, why is it that the the County Council of Howard County uh, is asked to to pass a resolution about the israel Hamas conflict i mean it it does it you know it 's not going to affect anything, but people want to be on the record this is what we think right and one of the challenges is people think differently
1: and and uh, people want the leaders to come out and speak strongly, saying what they want to hear. And, and one of the big problems with technology right now is that we do things in bytes. And it's really difficult to capture the subtlety of the issue and the challenge in five minutes or in two minutes with something that you've got to have a chance to think about it and talk about it. And we, we are at this point where I think the humanities are more important than ever, that we, we have to learn how to um, look at the language that people are using to hear it. And to think carefully about it and to put it in context using what we know from history, for example. Uh, and a part of what we're saying in the book about being resilient is having those courageous conversations, those difficult conversations, where we learn how to agree to disagree with some civility so that we can hear the other point of view. I was on a, uh, did an interview with a childhood friend, Condi Rice, recently and uh, in Birmingham, and we do think differently about different things. We are very close, only children of, a, of families, uh, and, uh, and yet what we could show was that we could argue robustly about some things and still love each other, you see. Because we, we've lost that, that, that ability to say, we may disagree on this, but you're still my friend, we are still Americans. Uh, we're still African-Americans for example in our cases you know and we need that and this is a part of what universities have to do as we think about how to prepare people to live in a divided society.
0: Condoleezza Rice like you an excellent pianist and a former senior official. She's an excellent
1: pianist I simply try (laughs) (laughs) I just for myself.
0: (laughs) The new book is called The Resilient University How Purpose and Inclusion Drive student success. Freeman Hrabowski and some colleagues from UMBC is the author and my guest this afternoon on Midday. I'm Tom Hall. So um, you talk about the importance of passion. Yes. You mentioned that yeah. as well as grit and yes. improvisation. Yes. And it struck me that the Meyerhoff Scholars program yes. at yes. UMBC is a perfect uh, paradigm and example of that. Because yes. Because that program has been around for a while. Sure. But sure. it's not like you just dreamed it up put it in place and then it never changed. I mean, you figured out how to make it work. And uh, you know, over and, the and, years.
1: and that's it's a great time to bring up and say happy birthday again to Bob Meyerhoff, who is now one hundred years old. Oh, God bless and him. who had the vision when he first talked with me to talk about wanting to do something to help black males who were always on TV for the wrong reasons, for challenges and going to jail. And so it really was the campus and Bob working together that created this Meyerhoff program. What what I would say is, though, his passion for producing these scientists of color is as great today as it was thirty five years ago. I start with that. And the university has that kind of passion and it's worked well because now we're scaling up in different places. The Howard Hughes Medical Institute is replicating kind of model involving Milhoff, and it's also got this new major scholarship program.
0: Which is named after you. Named
1: after me for $1.5 billion. Go figure. And and the point, though, is to to broaden participation in science. But again, it's with the notion of being more inclusive. That's the language we're using to have people of all races and genders and LGBTQ and all these groups together. And that seems to me. we, We have to think about how we can include more people, including in the diversity of thought. We don't want campuses seen as just pushing one way of thinking about things. There are, if you have thinking people, they will have different points of view. And we have to think about what that means. Now, free speech is important. Yes, it is important. But the law talks about it getting to the point where it incites lawful, illegal acts, violence. We have to look and we have to continue to hone our understanding of that notion of how far can somebody go and and be considered okay given that it leads to these you know, these, these acts of, of that are unlawful and the violence and the hatred. And, and that's a part, it seems to me, of what educators we talk about in the book. The, the, the most important chapter to me in the book is the last one, which talks about hope. Mm -hmm. That we cannot give up hope and right now in our society, on our campuses and in general, as we think about the future of our society and we we say the future of democracy. The first challenge is many people don't fully understand what we mean when we say the future of democracy. It's this notion that we do believe that what people say and what they think and how they vote should matter and that people should have the right to control their destiny. And universities will have a very important part to play in this next election.
0: Let me sure. ask you. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Let me ask you about the notion of inclusiveness when it comes to things like the ACT and the SAT. Yes. Because yes. that argument is going back and forth. That sure. pendulum is swinging. Sure, sure. Uh, A few years ago, it seemed uh, that it was, you know, the common wisdom was that it was an exclusive sure. uh, measure uh, and metric to use right. for students. And it was, uh, it was a barrier right. for uh, lower-income students or people who didn't go to fancy-schmancy schools. Sure. Now there are some colleges who are reinstating them right. saying no actually it turns out that research has showed that it's one of the best predictors it's one of the best ways of figuring out the potential of a student to have success what do you think
1: it's it's so much more complicated than we can discuss in a few minutes but since i've worked with it for 50 years i would say several things number one uh, it's reasonable that many institutions will continue to have it as optional, as one of the measures they will use, that they will use grades, though grades vary depending on the quality of the school. In certain disciplines, the standardized tests are more important than others. MIT makes that point, that when looking at performance on the math SAT uh, for a STEM major, it does make a difference. However, there are many measures that can help determine how a student will do. It, it, the test by itself will not do that, no by any means. And, and and the test is very not inexact. When you look at it, the fact is that somebody who has a, a 690 math SAT will probably do as well as somebody with a perfect math SAT if the person has had rigorous high school calculus already. You know, So so there are many points that we can't just use it as some holy grail. It is not. Yeah, it is it's not.
0: nuanced, no. like so many things. Yes. yes, yes. yes. But yes. I
1: will say this. One of the reasons that students of color do less well on the test has to do with reading skills. Whether the math, talking about the math test or the verbal test, that we, we have a challenge that Kurt Smoke talked about years ago and that I'm sure our new merit would agree with our, Brandon, our current merit would agree with, and that is we must emphasize reading more than ever i'm speaking to the national superintendents in california in the next week or so and i will be talking as a mathematician about the importance of reading and thinking and and writing and communication as a part of what we do in stem as a part of what we do in society and and for me as i think about it my colleagues as we work this book the notion was keep hope alive that we can work through building skills of students and changing mindsets at institutions in such a way that we continue to improve the culture so it becomes more inclusive, thinking about all of these groups that we've been discussing.
0: In our last few minutes let's talk a little bit about financial st- uh, sustainability yes. for universities. Yes. Um you you write that the public the, the model for funding public universities has changed dramatically. Yes. 25 years ago uh, you know the states did most of it families did a little of it. Now that has changed. The the, the that swing set has gone back uh, to the other direction. So mm-hmm. the burden of affording a public university education is now on the families. Um, What's the way out of this? So
1: so first of all, we need better language, clearer language for people who don't know about higher education costs. There's a lot of money, much more available for people from lower income backgrounds first. The problem is they don't necessarily scholarships know scholarships and yeah. financial aid, but we had a saying at UMBC, uh, uh, deadline by Valentine. If you get things in by a certain date, then you can make sure that you will be able to get certain money, all right? But one of our challenges is supporting the middle class more in addition to the low income. There's money, more money at that low, for lower income students. Uh, uh, and, and that has everything to do with how we vote. People don't realize that because yeah. it, it's the voting that leads to elected officials like those in our state who really do our governor and others who really do believe in higher education. Uh, that will lead to our doing more with the financial aid availability, not just for low income, but for working and middle class people. And we need that now more than ever.
0: Dr. Freeman Rabowski, along with Peter Henderson, Lynn Schaefer, and Philip Rouse, he is the author of The Resilient University, How Purpose and Inclusion Drive Student Success. Every time we talk... I get smarter, and all of our <laughs> listeners get smarter, and it's such a joy. Thank you. It's so great to see you, and uh, I hope that your so, so-called so retirement continues to be as busy as it is.
1: It is busy. <laughs> and, Tom, I love the way you do your homework. It's that liberal arts background you have, but well, you clearly do your homework.
0: I and wouldn't be important. sitting in a room without you without doing my uh-huh. homework. <laughs>
1: and just remember what I always said and continue to say, keep hope alive.
0: Keep Indeed. hope alive. Indeed. You give us much to hope for. That's it for us today. I hope you'll subscribe to the Midday Podcast podcast, and that you'll check us out on the WIPR app. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for joining us on the radio and online. Have a great day.